Welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Cowley. And Simon, we have made it. We have made it to 200. 200 episodes. Who'd have thought when we started this, oh gosh, I don't know, it might even be almost 10 years ago, that we would make it to 200 episodes of all sorts of foamy medical education goodness. Ah, double century. Something to be celebrated. Well, it's certainly something to be proud of. And soon... Maybe after the publication of this podcast, we may even reach the mythical million downloads, which would be a lovely thing to do. I know it probably doesn't mean anything to anybody apart from me and you and a few other handfuls of people, but uh, it's a nice thing to see. So Simon, let's not waste people's time by saying about how much work we've done in the last decade and let's move on because there's lots to talk about. Before we go much further, we should probably mention the Archem CPD conference, what with you being the CPD lead and all of that. Yep. Next week in Bournemouth going to be really good. It's a blended approach, so there'll be people there face to face um, with all the usual precautions there'll also be people online quite complex to put together but a really good program there's a there's a fantastic speaker on day one i believe in well i mean he's do, he's okay he's okay yes i am speaking on day one in a session chaired by yourself so it will be a bit of a st emlyn's thing and i know that rick and dan are both speaking as well and a whole crowd of southampton people too as it is of course our local conference simon i did actually meet a listener when I went into a local hospital with a HEMS patient recently, which was really lovely, I took a patient into the John Radcliffe in Oxford and one of the registrars there came up and just uh, had a chat about the podcast. And it's always quite a nice thing to hear that uh, people listen and like it. And uh, it was really lovely to catch up with her. So a little shout out to the team in Oxford. Now let's get on. Let's talk medicine. So we've got lots of evidence-based medicine to go through from the blog in February. You and Rick have both been doing talks at conferences, although not in person online, you were both talking at the Saudi Arabian Emergency Medicine Conference. And the posts you both put together about that are full of amazing evidence-based medicine. So why don't we start with those? Simon, you, you did a talk about myths in resuscitation practice. You know it's St. Emlyn's. We love destroying dogma. We love challenging the usual practice. Let's go through some of the things that you talked about at that conference. Great conference in Riyadh, obviously didn't make it in person previously been to this conference in person actually had a fabulous time they are some of the greatest hosts for a conference you could ever hope to meet and a really interesting group of people working in a slightly different health economy but the commonalities between what we do in our practice and their practice that we are the same we're all part of the same group really so i was asked to look at myths and resuscitation so it's really the stuff that we think we know but might actually be wrong so i kicked off with the stuff around airway management and cardiac arrest and that idea that we don't really need to go for an ET tube straight off. So things like the Airways 2 trial and some of the large airway registry observational trials have shown that there's really very little difference in terms of outcome. So Airways 2, I don't know whether you remember, was the success rate in terms of mortality was 6.4% if you put a superglottic in first or 6.8% for intubation and no difference in the modified ranking scale at six months. Really against doing something which we want to do because lots of people want to intubate. And when I was starting off in medicine, people used to like going to cardiac arrest in hospital because it gave them the option and the ability to perform intubation. It was a good thing to do. People liked doing it. We'll come back to that as an idea. But generally, we're moving away from that now. Although I don't know about you, Ian, in your pre-hospital work and certainly in ED, once the patient has got ROSC, we're often then converting them to an ET tube and paralysing them and giving them sedation. I don't know whether that's something you're doing as well. I think it all depends on the amount of time you've got pre-hospital, doesn't it? So if you're literally just getting into the 
into the recess room, then I tend not to try and do those things because the more faff pre-hospital, the less chance I've got to get that patient to the cath lab or to do whatever else. So it's a time-based thing, I think. But I'm certainly seeing with paramedic colleagues that they are using superglottic airways. And I, th- I think they're doing doing well. As, as It's a much more straightforward thing to do, isn't it? And and also the, the move away from the, oh, I've got to have an ET tube does actually reduce the training burden a little bit of all those people who were told, I've got to get to theatre. I've got to, you know, so I think... If the outcomes are broadly the same, it's a good thing. I completely agree. So sticking with the sort of airway and breathing, the next section we were going to look at was chest strains, because I've put loads of chest strains in over the years. But but the number of patients I'm now putting them in is getting less and less, because we're increasingly conservatively managing them. There's quite a few papers come out in the last five or six years, which really challenge the idea that every patient with a pneumothorax needs a drain. They don't. And if you've got something like a haemothorax, you need to put a massive drain in. The ones are highlighted with a Brown's paper, which we reviewed on the blog um, some time back about conservative management of pneumothoraces. That was from Australia, published in New England Journal of Medicine, I think. 316 patients are randomised and there was really no difference in terms of medium term outcomes a few weeks later about whether or not they needed a chest drain or not or need for any further intervention, which I thought was really interesting. So I think we can, and the thing about that paper is a lot of those pneumothoraces were really big, you know, so I'm quite happy to leave small ones as it is now, but actually they were leaving really very considerable ones, so long as the patient wasn't physiologically compromised. Then there was the issue of whether or not we had to put big drains in for haemothoraces. I don't know, what was your standard size uh, drain for a haemothorax in trauma? What would you put in? Well, this is the difference between what's my standard size and what's the standard size I'm asked to put in. So I would very much like to go towards the smaller Seldinger type drain. But I think cardiothoracic colleagues and you and I both work in trauma centres with cardiothoracics on site do tend to talk about a large drain, don't they, or a surgical drain. There is a little bit of a conflict there about what I would like to do and what I think the evidence supports and what I kind of need to do in order to get along with my inpatient expert colleagues. Yeah, have we got a number that you jump on? 28. I think that's probably true for me as well. Um, that's what I would go for. And, and a lot of people would consider that to be quite small. Actually, I, I work with plenty of people who would say you need to put a 32 in. Well, actually, there's some evidence now from a variety of different trials, both in pigs and now in humans, that using something as small as a 14 French in a stable traumatic haemothoraces might actually work just as well as putting in a 28 to 32 French. So I thought that was really interesting. And again, challenges that dogma that we have in the past. And then they've put some other stuff in about some other papers which show that conservative management of spontaneous pneumothorax is probably the right thing to do, even if they're pretty large. And even actually, if you end up ventilating the patient, there's some good observational data now that patients who've got small pneumothoraces that you pick up on a CT scan, that in the past you go, oh, they've got a small pneumothorax, they're ventilated, they've got to put a drain in, actually you can leave them. Really interesting stuff, actually. Next bit was um, a human factors thing. I always think this is uh, really important. And I was really, really delighted that I um, got to meet Chris Turner after we'd done this presentation, actually, who's from the Civility Saves program. He's a Coventry-based emergency physician. He's done a huge amount of work on bringing awareness that you can't exactly act like an idiot in recess and expect good outcomes. There's increasingly evidence that patient care is affected by rude behaviour. And so the idea that if you rude to people, then people, 80% of people will lose time worrying, 38% of people will reduce their work quality, 48% will hope to reduce their time at work, 25% will take it out on other service users, 20% decrease in performance, 50% less likely to help other people. Basically, if you see bad behaviour, you've got to start calling it out because the impact of it 
Chris, one of the things Chris talked about years ago, which I really liked, was particularly for people like you and me, and Ian, who are um, supposedly in leadership roles. It's a you know, if you think of your department as a pond, when we make a bad mistake or we are rude or our behaviour is below par, it's like a big massive stone being thrown into the middle of the the pond there's a big splash where it happens but the ripples from that go everywhere and that's the case for everybody in the department but particularly for those in leadership roles you're a bigger stone and therefore it's even more important that your behavior is kept in check and two things for that one is call it out in others but also try and foster an environment where somebody else can just come and tap you on the shoulder and go i'm not sure that went so well do you want to see if you can make that a bit better I, i i quite like that as a concept I always think it's strange that we have to even talk about this as something we need to to concentrate on. But you do see these behaviours. And the thing I've taken to describing is that negative emotional contagion, that thing that one person being a bit down, bit moody, bit rude, even in the vaguest sense, can really have a knock on effect to people who aren't even involved in the conversation. They might have just overheard it. And you you know what it's like if you're, you're at the checkout in a supermarket and somebody in front of you, two in the queue, starts to get grumpy with a checkout assistant. You feel uncomfortable, don't you? You feel really anxious and nervous and it's it's just unpleasant. And why we still have this at work, I'm not sure. But I do tend to try and convince myself and others that if people are rude, especially people outside the department, it's often a reflection of the stresses they are under. I don't truly believe that people are innately rude well, not, not lots of people, but the, the position they're being put in is putting that stress on them. So sometimes I think you can just disarm people by, are you okay? You sound like you're having a really tough day. Um, and that can actually be that little moment where all of a sudden it opens up and says, I, I just don't know what to do with this patient or whatever it might be. And I will talk a bit more about human factors, especially in trauma next week in my talk. I don't know if we've mentioned that I'm doing a talk next week, Simon, but yeah, so I, I will be mentioning some some of this stuff then. I feel it may be mentioned once more, at least in this kind in this podcast. Right, moving swiftly on, calcium. And we got interested in calcium this year. A couple of things. Um, one is there's that big randomised control trial that showed that calcium doesn't really work in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Over the years, I've seen calcium fall in and out of favour as a cardiac arrest drug. But this sort of fairly definitively shows that it's not particularly helpful. Pub- paper published in JAMA, links are on the website. I think it's Valentin et al. So that was good. You can put that to one side, I think, except in your exceptional circumstances where calcium is actually the treatment. So for instance, if you're arrested because you're hyperkalemic, still give the calcium. If you're arrested because you're hypercalcemic, give the calcium. There are reasons why it might be done, but in general, not a routine drug. And then also in the trauma patients, we're seeing a number of papers which show a strong association, not necessarily a causation, but a strong association between hypocalcemia and adverse outcomes in your trauma patients. So this is something you should be looking for, actively managing. And if you're giving blood products, which we know have got collating agents for calcium in them, you should be actively avoiding getting hypocalcemia by giving calcium alongside your blood transfusions. And we've talked before, haven't we, about the change in the lethal triad or even the lethal four and how that uh, people, particularly Corinne Brohe, are now talking about the lethal triad as being coagulopathy, hyperkalemia and hypocalcemia. So yes, we've got no calcium, thank you very much, in medical cardiac arrest, but in traumatic bleeding, calcium seems to be a good thing and think of it early. Going alongside that is the idea of blood for trauma as a resuscitation fluid. The mantra and the dogma in recent years has been blood is the right thing to give in trauma. Well, interestingly, I didn't have the data in the talk, but now we know from the refill trial, we'll talk about that next month in some more detail, 
that blood pre-hospitally in trauma hasn't really been shown in that trial. Lots of caveats, but not in that trial to make um, much of a difference in terms of outcome for trauma. Worth checking on the on the blog again, the composition of what's in a bag of packed red cells, which of course isn't whole blood. It's a very abnormal substance with a very low pH, about 6.7, a very high hemoglobin, about 18.7 or 187 if you're using those units. But really interestingly, um, a potassium of about 20, 20, I'm going to say it again, and a lactic acid of, of 10. So if that solution was clear fluid that you got in a box like Hartman's, people put a big red warning label on it saying, do not infuse this quickly. And yet that's what we do with packed red cells. So lots to think about. And we really haven't got transfusion sorted yet in trauma. There's a lot more work to do. And I'm glad that there are people like Karim and others um, and the refill team and Gavin and, and Nick who are really keen on pushing this forward and i hope to see a lot more in the next five to ten years undoubtedly we will talk about the refill trial more next month there are already things out there in the fomed world and you can even watch the presentation that was done on the day of publication which simon you were involved in via the amazing critical care reviews website i think we've promoted before but probably cannot promote enough i completely agree it was a lot of fun to do great to get back doing that and yeah the stuff that rob mcsweeney does over on critical care reviews website puts us to shame it's a really fantastic resource so that's your talk in Saudi Arabia or on a computer in Saudi Arabia. Then Rick, Professor Rick Boddy, who has been incredibly busy over the last year or two with all of his research and continues to do amazing things. His research portfolio is increasing all the time. He was asked to talk, I think somewhat to his own surprise, he admitted, (laughs) about uh, cutting edge evidence-based airway management. To his credit, Rick did admit that perhaps this wasn't his foremost expertise, but then has put on the blog site recordings of these talks, which are well worth a watch and does talk a bit about airways, what we've been doing with them, covers a bit of what we've already talked about with the Airways 2 trial. But then he is able to talk through how papers are written and how we translate evidence. And of course, there is a mention of using high sensitivity troponin and the Tmax score. Yeah, and particularly the Presto study, which is looking at the Tmax score and um, ponins in the ambulance which is, will be a surprise to a lot of people, I think, but some really interesting results. And we've got a preview of the results on the website. A whole bunch of other links, as you say, out to various different trials. Also highlights a paper which reviewed on St. Emlyn's about the 20 years of experience with surgical airways in the London Ambulance Service. Remember that one that showed that the number is coming down and down and down, possibly due to better training and better devices, but also that at the point where you're doing this, there aren't many survivors from that procedure, but really interesting stuff. And also, I remember the first smack when we were talking about video laryngoscopy versus direct laryngoscopy. And there was a bet, I think, with Min Kong about how long people would continue to use DL versus VL. Well, I, what I see now is that most anaesthetists are, are preferentially choosing video laryngoscopy in the department. Still not using that pre hospitally but video laryngoscopy in the department. And there's some really good links to a paper on top tips to, to get you best out of that in critical care situations. I'm still a DL man. Well, know. interestingly, so I'm, I'm, we're older than we look. And I first did anaesthetics back in the last century when I was very much taught the thiosucks tube kind of method. <laughs> and uh, well, famously, one of my anaesthetic consultants who I learned from, I loved his method of checking the anaesthetic machine. Uh, he came in, he kicked it. And if it didn't fall over, then it was okay to use. I'll never forget those formative years. Anyway, I was a DL man too. Until recently, I had a case pre-hospitally where I did struggle to get a view, not least because it was a bright, sunny day. I got there in the end with my direct laryngoscopy 
laryngoscopy and afterwards we're chatting it as a team and talked about video laryngoscopy and and said well what, why don't you just give it a go and actually part of it was my reluctance to move to these newfangled things but ever since I've used it and actually I'm I'm a fan I'm a real fan it, it does seem to work and we are lucky enough to have it on our pre-hospital service and I don't think it's for people like you and I succumbing to modern technology and giving up our skills. It's just a different skill. I'm a convert and uh, I'll be interested to see, Simon, with your increasing pre-hospital experience, at what point you convert to. There are two video laryngoscopes in the back of the vehicle. Maybe that will come sooner than I thought. We just mentioned there surgical airways and how often that is a futile procedure or especially pre-hospitally when you're involved with those patients. Zaf, who is based over in the States, uh, formerly of the UK and from up in Manchester, he is very interested in trauma and does a lot of research in trauma. And he wrote a journal club post about another procedure which isn't really associated with positive outcomes, that of pre-hospital thoracotomy. And this was a paper that was published by colleagues of ours who work in Essex and Hearts Air Ambulance and looking at several years of experience of resuscitative thoracotomies, published in uh, the Scandinavian Journal of Trauma Resuscitation and Emergency Medicine, which I think is getting more and more traction, not least because of its promotion through the recess room. Uh, And rightly so, free and open access is always a good thing. What's your experience of resuscitative thoracotomies? I mean, how how does it fit with what they found here, which was pretty much we don't do it that often. And when we do, the patients don't survive. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So they've got, I think, 44 resuscitative thoracotomies. About a quarter of them got ROSC but actually none of them got survived through to hospital discharge. And that doesn't surprise me, to be honest. We don't have a lot of survivors. I do know of several survivors that we've had from resuscitative thoracotomy in our experience and locally. That's within hospital and a couple now coming through the pre-hospital systems. But we're quite a different area to Essex and Hearts. We're a metropolitan area. We often have very short run times, um, both to get to the patient and a higher rate, I suspect, of penetrating trauma and short run times to hospital. And the trauma centre, which is used to seeing penetrating trauma, particularly chest penetrating trauma, with fairly good runs through the department into theatre for those patients who require it. And I think that, more than anything, is one of the things that I've taken away from Zaf's review, is that looking at resuscitative thoracotomy as an individual procedure is okay, it's interesting, and the data here is, is very helpful. But what we're really interested in is how does this fit into an advanced resuscitation process from point of injury through to, to in this case, almost always, well, it's always going to be theatre and then subsequently ITU and and onward management. And I think he makes some really interesting philosophical comments here about why that's important for us to look at it in the round and why perhaps the survival rate here might be lower than perhaps we were expected. And also, sorry, on the other one, there's another paper, which I can't remember where I saw it now, but it's in one of our other recent reviews, looking at thoracotomy success rates in the States. And what is implied in there is that in the UK, the point at which we're doing thoracotomies is when the patient has arrested. Whereas in other health economies, they're doing the thoracotomy at the point where the patient is peri-arrest. And in former conversations I've had with some of the London trauma surgeons is very much that if you wait until the patient is completely bled out and is dead and has no output and nothing is happening, you're probably doing it too late. Now, that's not in this paper. That's me philosophizing about this sort of thing. But maybe that's a, a point that we should be heading towards. It's a really interesting topic, isn't it, about what should we do? When should we do it? Is it worthwhile? Is it something that we're doing because, hey, one day we might have a survivor? And there are bits of me that struggle with this idea about, well, we need to do it as uh, we used to say practice, didn't we? These are individuals and opening their chest up for practice doesn't fit with me uh, in the modern day in any way, shape or form. And and the results are poor, aren't they? It's, It's how we maintain that we can be skilled enough to do this 
to choose the right patient who it may actually help and maintain the skills so that we're able to do it. And there's a loads of procedures not dissimilar to this. Surgical airway is another one. You see them very infrequently, but you still need to be able to do that at the time. Resistive hysterotomy is another one. These things are really challenging for us. And the only way I've really managed to get around this is the idea of the mental rehearsal. So each of these high impact, high risk, low incidence type procedures, I do practice in my head often. So that I sort of feel that at least if I was confronted with them, it wouldn't be starting from scratch. But it, I think this is the real challenge. And for our trainees or doctors in training who are coming through to exams, they often have to get this stuff ticked off. Have you seen this? Have you done this? Have you been part of this? Talk about chest drains earlier. You know, Have you been signed off for doing a chest drain? Well, we're doing fewer and fewer of those. And so we may actually have to look at what it is that we have to ask for people to reach that minimum standard to become a consultant because getting X number of chest drains may not be applicable anymore. I agree. So we we do have the way to train for this, but it is about keeping your skills up for those. So you're ready for when those times may happen for that once in a career, perhaps twice in a career type event, because I think we're a bit different in that way. Not many specialties have to be ready for those things, do they? No. And um, I've seen some very interesting um, high risk, high urgency procedures done in my department recently, I'm going to specify the ones, but, you know, looking at how people have trained and repaired and particularly how one of my colleagues supported one of the registrars to do one of those procedures without sort of elbowing out the way and doing it themselves was particularly impressive. So, Simon, as we're just talking about research, I know that you've been involved, well, for a long time with research, but the James Lynn project is something about setting the priorities for where we should be looking next. And we've already mentioned some research that's gone on, and I think Refill should be hugely congratulated for managing to perform an RCT like that in the pre-hospital environment. But emergency medicine's more and more becoming a focus of what can we do differently. Tell us a bit about how the James Lynn research priority setting works. Essentially, if you want to get big projects funded, it's really important that there is a recognised need for it to be done. How do you know there's a need for it, for it to be done? Well, in the past, it's always been the people who shout the loudest from their academic silos and ivory towers are the ones who get the money. What James Lynn does is it brings together everybody who's got a research interest, including academics, including ordinary, don't mean ordinary, but you know what I mean, people who don't consider themselves to be academics, emergency clinicians, uh, nurses, patients, really strong emphasis on getting patient views on what questions do we need to answer in emergency medicine research. There is a link, which I'll put on the blog, to the um, website that you can contribute your own ideas. And they don't have to be that well formulated. You can just be, I think we should really be looking at this. And then there's a process, bit like a Delphi type process, where we refine those down and then put eventually the top 10 priorities for research. Now, we did this in 2015. And I think nine out of 10 of those questions have now been funded and the trials are ongoing. So this is a really important way of getting money and skills and resources into emergency medicine research. So I strongly recommend and really hope that everyone listening to this will follow the links and go and put um, some ideas up there that we can get into emergency medicine research. It'd be great. What would you say to people who say, well, our emergency department, you and I were talking about this just before we pressed the record button. They seem to be ever busier and to think about engaging in something like research firstly how do you get your trust to say yeah no by all means have some time which we're going to pay you for to go off and do some research and how do you get the brain space to do it if you're just flogging your way through an emergency department is there a way to make this happen or is it something that keeps you interested and rejuvenates you between those tri tricky clinical shifts quite often the money will come from elsewhere so it's not coming out of your departmental budget so 
put that to one side. I think it's really important to do something like research or education or some other project in your life because it's important in particularly at times where we're really stressed and got lots of negativity in our workplace that we have balancing factors. You know, this is something I've learned from Liz Crow and from yourself is that you need lots of positivity stuff, stuff which you enjoy doing at work, stuff which is good to balance out the fact that you turned up this morning, there was a 10 hour wait and three complaints. And so that when you go to work, there is that balance of positive and negativity. And if research is your thing and you can get stuff out of it, it's great. If teaching is your thing, go and do that. But make sure that you put effortful energy into the things which make you happy. The mistake I see in some people in emergency medicine and and other specialties as well is that when things get tough, they stop doing the stuff which they enjoy doing in their job because they feel that they've got to concentrate on all the stuff which is going wrong. And I get that, but it's a recipe for disaster because it means that you'll increasingly spend more and more of your time in the areas which you don't enjoy and eventually your job will be crap. And I think it's really important that you try, if you can, and I appreciate there'll be people out there who say it's just not possible, but you know, if you can, that you hold on to those bits of your job where you put discretional effort in that make it a better place to be. And that is a strategy for a long-term career in medicine, not just emergency medicine, but just in medicine in general. And I think those things can change over time. So if you start off at the beginning of your career doing, let's say, research, you don't have to do that forever. You can transition into education or undergraduate education or whatever it might be. And I I think that's what I've seen both of us doing, Simon, over the last decade or so, is sort of picking and choosing and then picking things up, moving them on. I'm pleased to say the podcast and blog have remained a constant throughout and have been quite a therapy, actually. These are the things that we need to, you probably need to work harder at playing than we do at working uh, because play is important. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate there'll be people out there who go, I'm you know, just too busy. It's tough out there. And we, we hope that you can find time for the positive stuff. Our final post of the month was from Rusty talking about the rise of the ACP. This is part of a series that he's been doing. And I am delighted to say that I think advanced care practitioners are becoming more and more the accepted thing within emergency departments and really part of the team. I've seen this at Southampton. We've got an ever-growing band of permanent staff who are engaged, educated, credentialed, ticked all the boxes, really trusted, excellent colleagues to have. And I think it's only it can only be seen as a good thing. I completely agree. And we're hopefully developing ours more and more. We have our current cohort is absolutely amazing. But we, we'd like more. Simon, that's us. 200 episodes, uh, almost a million downloads, and uh, hopefully ending with some positivity. As I say, we'll be, I'll finally get to see you, actually. I don't remember the, probably two years since I've seen you in, in the flesh uh, next week in sunny Bournemouth. And if you are at the conference, please do come and say hi. And uh, no doubt I won't be able to resist wearing some form of St. Emlyn's branded top. So uh, highly recognisable. And it'd be lovely to catch up. And these are the events where you can really offload about the rubbish stuff and really get excited about the good stuff. So hopefully see some of you there. Take care, everyone.